This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews as we continue our study through Hebrews. We uh, took a little break last week, but we're in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. One of my favorite things on Sunday morning is hearing you sing. I love to sing as well. As a matter of fact, I have to pace myself a little bit because if I'm not careful, I won't have a voice by the time I get up here in the second service. But one of my convictions about Sunday morning gathering is that the lights should be up and that we should sing corporate songs. Uh, You can sing in the dark alone anytime you want to, but we get one chance a week to sing loud and to see each other and to sing singable songs. And sometimes as we're singing, I just stop singing and I listen to you sing. It blesses me. I loved hearing you sing this morning those familiar and comforting gospel-centered words from 1873 by Fanny Crosby. As you loudly sang, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. My favorite line from that song is, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You see, what Fanny Crosby is saying there is that when we can say Jesus is mine, meaning you've come to a place personally, yourself have come to a moment in which you have not only seen and understood the gospel, but you received the gospel. You've trusted Christ to pay for your sins. You've made a decision. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And you're following him when you've come to that moment and you can say that the Lord is yours, then at that moment, God begins to give you foretastes of glory. It's the most amazing thing. There will be these little moments in which you get just a little taste of what is to come in glory. It may be through a corporate worship service. It may be a time in which you're having a meal with friends It may be driving in the car alone. It may be listening to a piece of music. We just get these little tastes of glory. Now, I believe that glory divine is is Jesus himself. Jesus is the glory divine. Uh, The reason there will be no sun or moon in heaven is because everything will be illuminated by the glory of Jesus Christ. And everything our heart longs for is found in Jesus Christ. So those little moments, those little glimpses we get of goodness are really giving us a taste of of what it would be like to live in a perfect relationship with Jesus for all of eternity. C.S. Lewis is the one who's really helped me understand this in his book, Surprised by Joy. He talks about those little moments that we have in life, those, those brief, fleeting moments, I think this will resonate with you, in which everything just seems to be okay. They don't come very often, but sometimes they happen. And just for a moment, we feel as if everything is good and everything is right and we get a sense of joy that kind of overcomes us for a moment. What C.S. Lewis says is those are moments that God has given us. They're gifts. 
And what those moments are is little reminders. They're little taste of something that is to come. And so what God does in these moments is he gives us this little moment of joy as a foretaste to help us to understand that that little moment is what all of eternity is going to be like for those who know Jesus Christ. And that is really what Hebrews chapter two is trying to communicate. Hebrews chapter two wants us to get a little glimpse of glory. It wants us to get a little taste of all that is waiting for us if we know Jesus Christ. Now listen, I wanna remind you of how the chapter begins. It says this, it says, pay close attention to what you have heard so you don't drift away from it. And so the whole motive behind this chapter is saying to those who've made a profession of faith, now not everyone who makes a profession of faith really knows the Lord. There's a lot of people who make a profession of faith that go to hell. They have maybe prayed a prayer, they've known the facts, but they never truly trusted Christ and chosen to follow him. But he's writing to everyone who made a profession of faith and said this, if you don't pay attention to Jesus, if you don't keep thinking about Jesus, if you don't keep trusting and following Jesus, you're gonna drift away. And if you drift away, it's gonna be evident that you really didn't know the Lord in the first place and you're going to face destruction. So keep Jesus constantly before you. That's really how you know someone knows the Lord, that they make it profession and throughout their life, they keep Jesus before them. And so the whole motive of this is saying, don't neglect this incredible salvation that God has given you because this, God has glorious things for you in the future. And the greatest moment that you have ever had in life is just a taste of what every moment in eternity will be like to an infinitely greater degree. There is glory that awaits you because God's desire has always been, as it says in verse 10, to bring many sons to glory. Now, two weeks ago, we spent the entire week on verse 10 because it was Easter and I had planned on preaching 10 through 18, but I got excited about verse 10 and just decided on Easter it was a good day just to focus on that verse. But the whole point of that verse was that God wants to restore you back to the glory you were created for. So the beginning of chapter two tells us that you were created for glory, not for this, not for this broken, messed up world. You were created for something better than this. And the reason we have a longing in our heart for something more, even an unbeliever, is because you were created for more. And God says he created you to rule and reign. He created you for glory, but all of that was lost because of sin. But God wants to bring you back to glory. And so how does he do that? Well, verse 10 says he does that by sending to us a perfect hero who would come and suffer for us in order to save us from sin and bring us to glory. That is, that is the story of the Bible right there. God, seeing our sin and brokenness, longing to restore us back to glory, sends a perfect hero, Jesus Christ, to save you through suffering to get you out of sin and into glory. But verses 10 through 18 go together. And really verse 10, uh, and any verse in Hebrews can, can uh, justify a whole sermon, but verses 10 and 18 go together. So we're introduced to this hero and God's heart to get you to glory. But then the rest of these verses just kind of say, well, how is it that God does that? How is it that this hero brings us out of sin and to glory, trying to get us to see that salvation is about a decision you have to make. It is about a place that God is taking us, but it's also about right now. 
God leads us from sin to glory. And how is it that he does that? Through Jesus Christ. Well, let me read it for us. If you're there in Hebrews 2, verse 10, say amen. It says this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and from whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And here's where we'll begin today. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How is it that God through this perfect hero, Jesus Christ, gets us out of sin and all the way safely to glory. Well, here it is. First of all, this hero, Jesus Christ, takes on our nature, verses 11 through 13. Write that down. Jesus takes on our nature. This is the first necessary step of getting us out of sin and into glory. The first thing that this hero must do is he must take on our nature. He must take on flesh. It was impossible for him to save us without doing this. Now, one of the reasons I like as a regular habit to preach through books of the Bible is because if you just open up to a random passage and preach it, most likely you're gonna get it wrong. Uh, what comes before it helps us to understand it. And so in chapter two of Hebrews, we got this, this emphasis on the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he takes on our nature, he shares our flesh and blood, he knows what it's like to be us because he is fully human, born of a woman. He has experienced all of the things that we experienced in this broken world. But we have to see that in light of Hebrews 1. And Hebrews 1 emphasizes the divinity of Jesus Christ. Is he fully human? Yes. But he's different than us in that he is also at the same time fully God. So the letter of Hebrews begins by saying that Jesus is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sits down at the right hand of majesty, which means he's ruling and reigning. And he is right now much superior to all of the angels and everything else on earth. So in Ephesians 1, it establishes this fact. Jesus is God. But the glory of the gospel is John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So what Hebrews 2 is doing is it's trying to show us both of these things. 
fully human, fully God, like us, understands us, knows us, but at the same time is distinct from us. So look at how it does that in verse 11. It says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That word source there means that we have the same origin, the same nature. We share with Jesus a common humanity. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So Jesus partook of the same nature. Why? Because we had it. And he was coming for us in order to save us. He had to take on flesh and blood in order to do that. But yet, verse 11, while emphasizing all that Jesus knows and understands about us, also emphasizes that he is not like us. Because it says that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now the word sanctify means to be holy, to be right with God, to be pure. So it says Jesus is the one who sanctifies. We are the ones who need to be sanctified. Meaning we're not holy. We're not pure. We're born in sin. We are by our very nature, Ephesians 2, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there are a lot of words that you could use to describe us. Holy is not one of them. Jesus is holy. He is perfect in every way. He is right before the Father. So you have the one that is righteous and pure and those who are not righteous and pure. Jesus, the Holy One, takes on our nature so that he might come and make us what he is and that is holy and pure before God. And so we see him in his humanity, which is important for us. We, we see Jesus get hungry. We see him get thirsty. We see his tears, we see his temptation, we see his broken heart, we see him shed blood. And so all of the brokenness that you have experienced, Jesus knows that. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to have his hopes set on something and maybe they get disappointed. Jesus knows these things. He understands all of the brokenness that we live in. But look at what it says next in verse 11. It says, that is why, well, that, the fact that he took on flesh, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, all that means is this, is that you get this little passage in the Gospel of Luke in which a Pharisee walks into a temple and he prays and he sees a tax collector and hears his prayer. Oh God, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Now, if the Pharisee thought he could say that about the tax collector, how much more could Jesus stay in heaven and say, oh God, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. But instead of Jesus having that condescending attitude and staying up in heaven and looking at us and go, seriously, again? Could you be that much of an idiot? Seriously, I've already said don't do that. Instead of staying in heaven and having that attitude towards us, he comes to earth, experiences all of the brokenness of this life, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. No, he calls us brothers because he understands what it's like to live in a broken world. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to want to give up. He knows what it's like to have your heart broken. He knows these things. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because in taking on our flesh, he does become the brother of those who know him. And all of the next few verses, 12 and 13, quoting Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8, are telling us that God has sent a hero, a savior, to be a brother to us. 
to understand us in our sins and bring us back to the Father. I had this thought this morning, I I don't know if I've ever had it before, but I was talking with a man before the first service and we were talking about just the brokenness of this world and uh, I know some of the struggles that he's been through and even some of the struggles with his family and we were talking about just the way in which sin ravages our life and ravages our family and brings so much complication and dysfunction and just how much we just hate sin and all its effects. We just hate it. And then to think, listen, that Jesus left everything we long for to come and experience everything we hate. We hate the brokenness of this world. We hate the reality of sin. We hate temptation. And we long to get out of this world so that we can go to a place where we don't have those things anymore. Jesus lived in that place, but left that place to come to earth to experience all of the things that make our life so difficult. The reason is this, because he could not save us from a distance. He could not take away your sins. He could not defeat death unless he took on our nature. And so the first necessary step of God saving us through this hero is the first thing this hero had to come from heaven and take on our nature. The second thing this hero had to do is he also had to defeat our enemy. That's the second thing. Jesus takes on our nature, and then verse 14, Jesus defeats our enemy. So look at that verse in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning what we share together is we've all got flesh and blood, okay? Because of that, because of all humanity had flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, God becoming flesh. Why? Look at the word that. He did that. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. All right, let's think about that. The devil does not have the power to give life and to bring death. All of those things are in the hands of God. God ordains all of those things. Ephesians 1.11, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. But in the garden, when mankind sinned, We were under the authority of the Lord and as a result, experienced life. But because of sin, we then submitted ourselves to the authority of Satan. And instead of being under the dominion of the Lord where there is life, we came under the dominion of Satan. And the wages of sin is death. And so death is this great weapon that the enemy has, which he constantly holds over us to enslave us to the fear of death. Because the wages of sin is death. And all of us are born under the domain of darkness. So you might say, well, I never made a decision to align myself under the devil. Well, Adam and Eve did it for you, okay? So it changed the very nature of humanity. And all of us are now born, as harsh as this sound, you were born as cute and sweet as you were. You were born under the domain of darkness. Feeling the weight and the consequences of sin, All of those things are reality. So because of that, there's this reality of sin and death. Now, if Jesus wanted to defeat the devil, then he had to defeat death. And think about this. Without becoming flesh, Jesus could have never defeated death because while Jesus was in heaven, death was not a reality. 
So here we are in this broken world with death hovering over us and then eternal death after that. God wanting to save us from that had to send Jesus Christ in the flesh so that he might himself take on death and win and as a result defeat the devil. So we often have a tendency to sentimentalize the story of Jesus Christ, but let's just be clear, Jesus came to wage war. It was an all-out war. Jesus came to, according to Colossians 1.13, deliver us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and bring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is absolute war. Not everyone saw it that way. I love um, the first chapter of Mark. Read all of the Gospels. And if you look carefully, you'll see the war that's going on. But in Mark 1, it just exists to answer one question. Who is this Jesus? And no one has it figured out. So in Mark 1, the disciples don't yet understand who Jesus is. You see later in Gospel of Mark, Jesus' brothers and sisters don't yet understand who he is. The Pharisees don't understand who he is. You know the first one to really see who he is apart from John the Baptist? is Jesus walks into a temple and there's a man with a demonic spirit. And when Jesus walks in, the demonic spirit begins to speak through this man. I find it incredible that here's a man who was probably in the temple every day, but the demonic spirit was not bothered because you knew who probably wasn't in the temple every day? God. A lot of churches like that. God doesn't show up. Nothing really happens. But Jesus walks in, so God comes into the church, maybe for the first time ever in that synagogue, and the demons say this, what have you come to do? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, holy one of God. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. We know who you are, holy one of God. Have you come to destroy us? Because the demons knew that Jesus came to wage war and to destroy them. This is why Matthew 12, 29 says, Jesus came to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. And you know what happens? Jesus cast out the demonic spirit and it says this, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. That's war. Spiritual warfare. This is a war for us to deliver us from the domain of darkness. And John 10, 10 says that, G, that, the son of, uh, that Satan has come to steal and kill and destroy. And so here is this enemy that we have. It is an enemy against us. And Jesus wants to deliver us from it. And so how does he do that? Well, this may sound strange, but Jesus delivers us from death through death. Jesus delivers us from death by, by dying. I don't know if you've ever heard of Benaiah. He was one of David's mighty men. Now listen, if you're ever reading through the Old Testament, through 1 Samuel and Chronicles, and you come to anything about David's mighty men, just stop and read carefully and listen because these were bad dudes, okay? And there's all these little stories of the things that they did. And I don't know exactly why we're giving these details, but it just emphasizes the fact that these, these guys were something else. So it tells us about Benaiah in 1 Chronicles 11. It tells us he was a valiant fighter. It also tells us this weird story that on a snowy day, he goes into a pit and kills a lion, which if you think about it, if the lion was in the pit, why would you go down to the pit and face the lion when you could maybe just go around the pit and not get in contact with the lion? 
but it just tells us Benaiah was wanting to kill a lion. And he did. So he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Okay? It tells us another thing about him. He faced a seven-foot Egyptian. And it said the Egyptian carried as his spear a weaver's beam. So this massive beam, most likely twice the size of the Egyptian. So a seven-foot Egyptian with a 14-foot spear. And Benaiah wants to take him. Okay? So it says that Benaiah goes to fight him, but instead of taking a spear, Benaiah just takes a club because why not? Pummel the guy with a club, it's cooler. But then it says this, he goes after him with a club, but he doesn't beat him with the club. He takes his own sword and kills him with his own sword. And that's just awesome. I don't know, maybe I'm a guy, I don't know, that's just awesome. Like steals the guy's sword, so beats him somehow, takes the sword, kills him with the sword. I love that so much. That's just incredible. Amen. Listen to me. It's exactly what Jesus did. You know, John 10, 18 tells us that no one takes Jesus's life from him. He lays it down and he'll pick it up again when he wants to. Jesus was not murdered. Jesus willingly laid down his life. And the reason he did is because he wanted to go head first into death to take on death. And then through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he took the devil's greatest weapon and used it to destroy him. And that was a great place for a few amens. Like I was expecting some amens right there. Okay, I, I don't, maybe I didn't deliver it right. So Jesus took on death. I'm going to try it again. He took on death, and through the resurrection, he took the devil's greatest weapon and used that weapon to destroy the devil. Why don't you just do that all the time? Why is that so hard? Was that so painful? Listen, how is it that Satan could defeat, I mean, that that Jesus could defeat death? Well, the only way is to, to take it on. (laughs) to not avoid it, but to take on flesh and come and destroy that enemy by dying himself. And so Jesus plunged into death and it said he did it, verse 14, to destroy the one who has the power. That word destroy means to render him powerless, to take all of his power away. And the way he does that is through the resurrection. He shows us that our death is actually the entrance into greater life. So we don't have to be worried about death because in death, we get the fullness of everything you got a foretaste of. That greatest moment of joy, that little fleeting moment, that's what awaits you as God brings you to glory. And the only reason that's possible is because Jesus took all the sting out of death by destroying the devil with it through the resurrection. He becomes flesh, thank you, he becomes flesh. And then he defeats our enemy. The third thing he does in verse 15 is that he then removes our fears. He then removes our fears. So verse 15 serves as like the beginning of the application, okay? So we know the gospel, and here's what happened. As a result of the fact that the devil is now powerless, so he's rendered powerless, because that one great weapon he had doesn't bother us anymore, because through death we get life, Verse 15, and to deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So one of the ways in which the enemy continues to work in our lives, 
even as a believer, as he continues to steal and to kill and destroy. And his desire is to take away the things that God has given us, all of those things that are rightly ours through Jesus Christ. And one of his greatest weapons is just the fear of death. I love what it says here. There are those who, for the fear of death, have been in lifelong slavery. Because fear enslaves us and it immobilizes us, it controls us, and especially the fear of death. There is almost nothing that will just suck the life out of you more than fear. It paralyzes us. Fear is slavery. Fear is spiritual warfare. Fear is demonic. It's slavery. What it says here is that when death was defeated, that was the means by which all of those who lived in the lifelong slavery of the fear of death could be delivered from that. Meaning, you don't have to be afraid anymore. One of the things Andrew and I have been talking about lately, to be honest, Andrew has been talking about a little bit more is uh, my propensity toward worry. I have a problem with worry. And I have learned this little principle, and I say Andrea's talking about it because by God's grace, she's pointing it out to me more and more, which is helpful. But I learned this little principle in pastoral ministry, and by the way, this is bonus. This is, this is, this is just bonus. This is good, and it'll help you. What I've discovered in pastoral ministry is any sin or habit or tendency you have when you're young is exacerbated the older you get. If you don't deal with it when you're young, so you've got you know, lust or fear, anxiety, worry, pride, and you just think that it's gonna get better when you get older, let me tell you something, it doesn't get better, it gets bigger. And your ability to hide it gets less. So everything you deal with now, I think about our college students in the, in the tabernacle and our students in here, all of those things that are little now don't get better, they get bigger. And so I know this, and I'm seeing how the older I get, like I just move from one thing to the next. So I have something I'm worried about, but then I stop being worried about it because I figured out it wasn't a big deal and I didn't need to worry about it. And so instead of learning, I just pick up another one and I get another one. And then I worry about that for a while. And then I get another one and another one and another one. And so I'm fighting this. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm trying to memorize scripture. Like I'm laying up bed at night and and this is the time in which usually these worries come. And I'm just trying to fight this because it is spiritual warfare and it is demonic. And when I read Hebrews 2.15, the first thing it says is this. So in your whole list of things to worry about, there's one thing for sure you can cross off. And that's death. So just, just go ahead. If you believe the gospel, just kind of mark that one out. There's lots of others, but just mark that one out. Now, the fuller application of Hebrews 2.15 is this. You don't have to worry about anything. Like, there is no fear because if the greatest fear, death, has already been taken care of, what else is there? Like, what's bigger than that? And the way he has done that is he's reminding us that in your death, you will get real life if you know Jesus Christ. Now, now listen, listen to me. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, meaning you have not trusted Jesus Christ, if you are not following him as your Lord and Savior, you should be terrified of death. Terrified of death. Because your worst moment on life does not compare to the eternity that you're going to experience if you don't know Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. That if you'll simply trust Jesus Christ, your greatest moment is just a taste of all of eternity. And the one thing you do not have to worry about is death. The reality is, is 
Jesus has turned death from being this fearful ending to a joyful beginning. Fear of death just robs you of your life. And Jesus has come to give you life. And we wage war, spiritual war, on our own worry and our own fear because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he takes on our nature. He defeats our enemy. He removes our fears. And the last part is this. He then becomes our priest. So this hero then, then becomes our savior And then he becomes our priest. That's verses 16 through 18. It says this, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So he didn't come as an angelic being. He came as a divine being. And he's not come to help angels. He's come to help us, humanity. Therefore, in order to help us, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. If you want to go home and meditate on something, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus understands what it's like to be human. So that he might become, through his humanity and through his sacrifice for sins, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. So we need a high priest. Because a priest is a mediator. A priest is a mediator between us and God. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is this massive like chasm between you and and God and you need someone to help you get there. And so in the Old Testament, a high priest made a sacrifice so your sins could be forgiven and then he interceded on your behalf to God and you couldn't get to God without the high priest. Hebrews 5 says every high priest in the Old Testament was just a picture of Jesus. He's the ultimate high priest because he has made the ultimate sacrifice for your sins and then he is now interceding for you and he is there to help you. So Jesus, after his work on the cross, has now become our high priest. And then it said this, look at verse 17. He has come to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So let me tell you just one of my little pet peeves is when translators of the Bible look at words like propitiation and say, well, a modern audience isn't gonna understand that. We should change that to something else. To which I wanna say, of course, they're not gonna understand that, but maybe they could learn a new word. I don't know. I mean, maybe instead of taking a really important word and making it a less word that you can understand, maybe, maybe you could go beyond a kindergarten level of understanding and learn a new word to help you understand the depth of the gospel. Now, listen, I'm not the normal pastor. I believe you can learn a new word. I believe in you. All right? Here's what propitiation means. It means to remove wrath through suffering means to appease something through suffering. What it means is this. Romans 1 tells us in verse 18 that God's righteous judgment and wrath is poured out upon all ungodliness. Without Jesus, you are under the just wrath of God. But God in his love has sent a way out of his wrath to experience the fullness of his blessing for all of eternity, but he didn't just forget about sin and wipe away the wrath. He took all of the wrath and placed it upon Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 53 says this, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. All of our iniquity was laid upon him and he paid for it, taking upon himself the wrath that we deserved. So listen, all of the anger of God towards your sin 
and all of the dysfunction of your sin and the pain of your sin was laid upon Jesus Christ so that the most painful thing about the death of Jesus was not the nails in his hands and his feet. It was a, a taking upon himself the wrath of God that we deserved. He bore the wrath in our place. We don't do anybody any favors when we fail to tell people about the reality of hell. Because hell is the outpouring of the righteous wrath of God for all of eternity. Hell was not created for you. Hell was created for the devil. But when we choose to align ourselves with the devil and don't submit to Jesus Christ, then you have chosen not only him, but you have chosen his future. But it does not have to be that way because there is a faithful high priest who has already made propitiation if you will trust him. And verse 18 says this, it is because of this, because he suffered and because right now he's at the right hand of the father listening to you and giving the spirit to you. When you're tempted, he's able to help. So what is this practical application of the gospel? Well, first of all, you don't have to be afraid. Second of all, when you're tempted, there is a God who understands and he is ready to help you in your temptation. Now, I just want you to notice a couple of things as we close about this text overall. I want you to notice the family language of this text from beginning to end. I just circled all the words in verse 10. He's bringing sons to glory. In verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. In verse 12, he calls us brothers. In verse 13, he calls us children. In verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood. Verse 16, the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, he is made like his brothers in every respect. And I just want to remind you that the, the legal language of the gospel is really important. We think the Protestant Reformation for helping us understand what it means to be declared righteous in the court through the blood of Jesus Christ and so now we're declared righteous and instead of sinful. We need that. That's important. It's biblical. But in the midst of all of that language, let's not forget that God is bringing together a family. He's just, he's bringing a family to which this, by the way, every church is supposed to be a little picture of God wants a family and he wants you and he's bringing you back into right relationship with him. His desire is to bring many sons to glory. J.I. Packer, who passed away a few years ago, probably the greatest theologian of our generation, said this. Listen to this. He said, you can summarize the entire Bible in three words. Write this down and think about it, all right? Three words. Adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. What he means is this. Through the death of Jesus Christ, by absorbing the wrath of God, and now us receiving all of the love and blessing that should just belong to Jesus, we get adopted into the family of God. Jesus is the only true son of God. We get adopted into the family of God, and that is exactly what God wants to do for you. The only one who are God's children are those who have come to faith. God is inviting you into the family. The other thing I want you to notice simply is this, is I want you to notice the, the present reality and benefit and goodness of your salvation. Yes, Jesus came to get you out of sin and to bring you to glory. Listen, so out of sin into glory, the moment you were saved, the moment you get to heaven, but what about all of this? Like, does the gospel have anything to say about this? 
out of sin into glory. And in between all of that, we have a high priest that wants to remove your fears and help you out of temptation and give you his spirit and help you to make progress and to use you for his glory. And the reason we drift away from salvation, Hebrews 2, is we fail to think about Jesus today. The gospel is good news today. In the next chapter, he's gonna say this in Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So here's what I wanna say. Today, some of you need to get saved. Today, we had someone in the first service. Today, some of you need to acknowledge that you don't know Jesus Christ and you need to get right with him. Today, some of you need to say, God, I don't wanna be afraid anymore. God, deliver me from the fear of death. Some of you say, God, I need your help. I've got a temptation. The gospel is good news for today. Jesus is about today. What do you need him to do today? How do you trust and follow him today? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.